Welcome to a special episode of the ABC Music Talk podcast. In this episode, I catch up with two of my new colleagues following the successful sale of their business to Beatport. Normally at this point, I'd run a quick advert for Rotor videos, but for this episode, I'd like to alert my listeners to an opportunity to try out Beatport's streaming service. If you've ever fancied trying a hand at DJing, but haven't yet invested in a catalogue of music or the kit to play a set, then Beatport has the answer. Head to beatport.com and click the DJ app link to start your free trial of their new online DJ mixer. All you need is a computer, internet connection, and a love of dance music. Link in the show notes. So welcome to the show, Ed Brew and Derek Clark. Thank Hello. you. Thanks Good to for be having here. us. So listeners, I don't know if you can hear that, but we've got a mix of accents here. So, uh, so Ed, where are you from, first of all? So originally Worcester. Worcester, okay, yes. so that's in England. And Derek? Boston, Massachusetts, or as they would say, Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> you have to accent it like that, is that that's how that works? <laughs> Very good. Um, excellent. So, um, I mean, in my opinion, uh, you've single-handedly revolutionized the demo submission and review process for, for record companies for the modern era, at a time when music creation is at an all-time high. But what is the elevator pitch for my guests? Who wants to take that one? Or do you want to do it together? I don't know how this works, really. At the same time, just like... Yeah, like the creepy twins in a a horror film. Label Radar streamlines the process of sending and receiving music across the music industry. uh, And we democratize access to key decision makers. So we give them relevant, actionable data. Uh, easy to review clips chosen by the artists themselves to make it easier than ever for them to find new music. And when the labels then take an action on these demos, the artists are notified in real time too. Very good. Yeah, like like Tinder meets LinkedIn for the music industry, but classier dating app. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> than Tinder. Okay, very good. And so, when did you set the uh, when did you set the company up? Twenty seventeen. We incorporated, but for about a year before that, we were sort of just just noodling shooting on the, the idea. ideas back and forth, and yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that Facebook Messenger thread from back in the day is quite oh, yeah. quite fun to read now. Yeah, <laughs> I bet it is. Um, and uh, I know this piece of trivia, but how many times have you met in real life since since that beginning point? This second, is the second, second time, time. Second over, time. over like six or so years yeah. since we've known each other. Isn't yeah, second that, time. Isn't that incredible? Literally, right? yeah. once at the very beginning of the journey, and once now. So, yeah, no, that's that's really really quite um, impressive, and um, and actually it's quite also quite an important time because Ed, you've just come back from paternity leave. Right? I have, <laughs> I have. Can you tell? Is it show? No, 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 you are doing well. You are doing well. Do okay. not worry. Uh, very good. Um, okay, so uh, let's start at the beginning. So back to that sort of time. Yeah, where did it all? When did it all begin? Like, where did you first kind of come into contact with each other? Sure, yeah. So it all started from uh, a charity project, basically, where I had just completed one and uh, one of the partners in that, uh, Cody from MonsterCat, he recommended that you get in touch with me because you were mm-hmm. starting your charity project and mm-hmm. we just started talking about you know things I lessons I'd learned from my experience that could potentially help him any contacts that kind of thing and then uh, we realized pretty quickly that we had this kind of shared vision for 
for how we can improve the music industry and, and all these kind of pain points that we're seeing both from the large entity side where it's a label receiving thousands of demos and you know struggling to actually get through and get ROI from the time that it takes them to get through that sheer volume of, of emails. Um, versus smaller labels who want to get access to greater deal flow but just aren't on the, the radar uh, right. of enough artists. I can, I can yeah. see where the name is starting to creep in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, very good. And um, and so it's these charity projects, uh, Derek, what, what was your one, for example? Yeah, it was, it was called Center Music, and we would do um, EPs for, for different... Um, you know, different charities and we would pick different causes. But one of the biggest challenges was I would send hundreds of outbound emails a week, just sending artists an email being like, hey, do you guys have any tracks to release? You know, nine times out of 10, they wouldn't respond. But then for the ones that did, it just wasn't the right timing. They're like, you know, maybe I would work with you on this, but I just don't have an open release at this point. So there's a lot of frustration of just like finding artists that are about the right size, that'd be open to it, that have music actively available to sign like right now. Yeah. Um, so there, there's just a lot of frustration from like the smaller label side, you know? Because I mean, that was one of the things that I, I guess isn't immediately obvious to somebody sort of looking into label radar because you think about the demo submission processes as being quite an overwhelming state, uh, certainly yeah. for those of like myself, I came out of the, the major label environment originally and, and you know, and of course you just get sort of boxes of this stuff back in my day, mm -hmm. um, there's actual CDs and other things. Um, but you, the thing you've just identified there is that the smaller labels have this kind of inverse problem, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, there was no, um, a good metaphor was like, there was no place to just go where there was all unreleased music that uh, isn't signed yet, that you know is uh, is fresh and recent, that's scanned for content ID, almost like a like you're going to a vinyl record store and you're combing through the the boxes of vinyl mm -hmm. and just browsing for unreleased music that just didn't exist. And you know, and and what the bigger labels don't realize is they don't think they have a demo problem in terms of they're getting tons in, so it's like we don't need more. But their problem is actually that they're not dealing with it in a healthy way for their longevity of their brand because when we look at who is sending them those demos. It's the same people who stream their new releases, who go to their shows, who buy their merch. And when those artists don't feel heard and they basically submit into this black box of a uh, email inbox that they never hear back from, you know, they never, they don't know, was it listened to? Did I not hear back because it wasn't good enough or just no one's actually listened to it? Do I need to try harder to get their attention? And then that can create more pain points for both artist and label. But ultimately, they get disenfranchised, right? They feel like I'm here doing all this support of this brand, and then when I try and get yeah. in touch with them, I can't get anything back, and so it, it it then leads them to be less inclined to support that brand in the future. So, these bigger labels, in a lot of the cases that we've worked with, they were really excited to finally get a solution that enables them to have that positive community interaction of being able to reply to the artists and being able yeah. to actually get through that volume and find the stuff that is interesting to them. Because when it's just an, a, a set of emails, it's, you know, it's really difficult for the amount of time you have to spend. Yeah, because uh, typically the, the role of an A&R person at a, a dance label in particular isn't just the talent scouting element of it they mm -hmm. have other responsibilities and I yeah. guess that's where some of those bottlenecks uh, you know occur exactly they don't sit there day in day out just pure listening to demos you know, they've got plenty of other stuff to go well and, and sometimes I guess that de gets delegated to an intern which 
not necessarily the right filter for your sort of big brand label. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, the next generation, of course, but not necessarily uh, of the moment. Um, and so, where did the love of dance music come from, Derek? Oh man, yeah, I would say um, Skrillex, like way back in the day, uh, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites. Maybe a little bit before By that, the way, but I, I remember that. I, I love how you say Skrillex like back in the day, just, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, no, it's, that's where it all came from though, like back from uh, junior high days and just really got into that rabbit hole, started producing music and um, always just sort of knew. I, I would go to shows and I would look at people on the side of the stage and just try to guess like what is their role in the industry and oh. just sort of slowly uh, fell in love with it and wanted to, to give back to it somehow. That's, yeah. that, 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 that's an interesting kind of observation that you're making about uh, an experience and you're actually genuinely sitting there going, I wonder what they all do. Well, you know, you know what's crazy? Um, Zomboy, I remember distinctly one of the first shows I went to was Zomboy. And I remember looking on the side of the stage and just like, that's when I first started doing that. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they do in the industry. I wonder what they do. And then um, just before our, our deal with Beeport closed, I was actually on, uh, at Electric Zoo, I was on the stage with Zomboy, like on the side in the same exact situation as when I first started, oh, like wow. as somebody on the stage. So it was like a really full circle moment where like, wow. Especially because at Electric Zoo, the other headliners of that festival, we've all worked with now Tiesto. in some capacity at Label Radar. Yeah. Wow, goodness. Yeah. And Ed, how about yourself? Uh, so mine was <laughs> uh, a box of Cinnamon Grahams, or I think they were called Cinnamon Toast. Oh no, it was Cinnamon Grahams back then. I think it was Cinnamon Grahams, yeah. yeah, they did change it. Um, and by the way, this is a, a box of cereal, this like is, bre yeah. breakfast cereal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a box of breakfast cereal. <laughs> and uh, you know, this was back in the glory days when you get some fun presents with your, with your cereal. And they had a... Uh, basically a sequencer software called EJ Dance for Club Machine. And uh, basically I just put that in the in the computer to see what had come with the serial and got fully into you know creating new music out of this bank of loops that it basically comes with. And uh, that kind of planted a it, you know I've always been quite creative and enjoyed those yeah. kind of pursuits. So this really like awakened something in me for music creation and uh, but then I, I wouldn't say I really properly got into music as such until, it, particularly dance music, I've always been quite eclectic, but the dance music stuff for me was when I was at uni first year and I think it was 2008 and I heard um, Chase and Status, Eastern Jam come on the radio and I was like, this is completely different to anything I'd heard before and the, the kind of drama of that kind of music, you know, I've always liked film score stuff and I think hearing this, you know, the rise of the dubstep era from there, not obviously the scream driven stuff, but more the, I guess, what I would hesitantly call bro step. But, um, you know, the, the, everything that led to that 2010 era of dubstep, where it was like the golden age, um, that was kind of what really cemented it for me. And I got very much into, you know, sourcing new music in that, in that style because it was so new, right? It was there being, you know, new producers and, and that were popping up everywhere. And uh, you had UKF and, and all of that stuff kind of championing the new sound, which was... Yeah, it was just a really interesting time. Yeah, very good. Actually, I didn't ask, what was the charity project that you were involved with to get you into this? Yeah, I, I was watching a Comic Relief. Okay. And I, you know, was like, yeah, I actually would really like to fundraise something, but I don't want to just do a bake sale, right? So 
I thought, what can I do? And at that time, I was producing music, and I had a network of, of other producers, and I thought, actually, I'd really enjoy putting together a compilation. And it started out as just 10 tracks of me and some of my close friends, and they were all brand new exclusive tracks that I would then... Um, you know, market and all the proceeds would go to uh, to sport relief. So it's comic relief, but they alternate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it actually, it reached a point where I was like, you know what, now we've got 10 tracks, why not go for 20? Why not go for 30? And why not reach out to some bigger artists and just see if we can build more traction on this? And by the time it released, it was 78 tracks. Oh, goodness. Uh, all brand new unreleased from some of my favorite artists. and uh, Savant, right? Wasn't Savant? Yeah, Savant yeah. was on that. Uh, Ramesses B and just like a whole whole bunch of uh, really, really solid artists. And yeah, it raised a whole bunch of money. And that was actually what opened a lot of doors for me in the industry because it, it made a big splash. And then there were a lot of labels who were like, actually, we think you could do a great job for us as a label manager. And that kind of thing. Ah, and so, but so, you, but you hadn't had a role in the music industry before now. No. So, okay. I mean, I have so many questions about how did you know about licensing, but uh, we perhaps for another I, podcast. I was doing a, a law degree at the time. Oh, well, that'll help. Yeah, that'll, that'll definitely yeah. help. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, very good. Um, and so, Derek, what was your kind of like sort of turning point really after your charity yeah, project? Yeah, I think, I think we. Um, so Ed was working at Monster Cat at the time and I actually hadn't had a formal role in the music industry right and I was sort of I was also obsessed with like the startup world and um, yeah we sort of just slowly built the idea and, and um, but up until the launch of Labor Art that was kind of the first foray into into the you know the world of dance music more uh, it took a couple of years to get full time yeah sure but um, which was also kind of refreshing because coming into it without that kind of traditional background helps to like see things in a different way and just get out of the the daily funk or the daily status quo i guess you know definitely and and you're typically more on the product side of things and ed you're more on the sort of the business and the yeah. sales yeah. side if you like yeah. um so what were you studying at university was it relevant to this or was it uh yeah it was music business and um okay. so it was you know it wasn't necessarily engineering or design but it was just sort of who were the people in the industry what are they looking to accomplish and um where the you know where all the different systems how does the the money flow copyright which was definitely a helpful you know perspective going yeah. into it yeah for sure um and so uh what has been the, the the process i mean given that this is the second time that you've met in person like how how what how did you work together how did you find a kind of a, a natural rhythm yeah great question uh, yeah i think we we're pretty fortunate to live in the time that we do because you know even 10 years prior it would have been a lot harder to do what we do now and we we relied heavily on tools like uh, slack and uh, obviously google hangouts and zoom and those kind of video conferencing tools um, just to bridge the gap so that you know you're sitting across from someone even when you're not sitting across from someone and um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was a big leap of faith from Derek actually when we first started because you know, it was still this you know, fly-by-night idea that you know, we both had complete faith in, but we needed you know, some injection of capital to get off the ground and Derek committed his life savings to do that. Amazing. And then I went through and just like put everything on the line for reputation with all the relationships that I had at the time. And sure. that just, you know, you don't get too many shots yeah. with those kind of things and thankfully, yeah, you know, we we both went full full speed ahead with it, and it it paid off. 
Yeah, it, it's definitely a happy story, you can tell. Yeah. yeah whereas <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are many that haven't worked out. But, and, yeah. but neither of you are software engineers, so how did you kind of figure out that piece of it? Did you? Have yeah, I, I was, um, so I was really close with two other uh, of our co-founders, Juan and Seba, their brothers. One's based in Argentina, one's in Spain. And I uh, did another project with them called Book Thinkers that um, was another kind of fly-by-night idea. And it was a platform that connected uh, non-fiction readers, kind of like Goodreads. Um, but through that sort of experience as their client, we built like a really good friendship. So by the time Labor was already getting um, energy between us and like we were sort of thinking it through, they were uh, they were super down. So we were really lucky. So two of the four, yeah, two of the four co-founders are um, technical. And without a technical co-founder, I don't know how you'd possibly possibly do it. Yeah, no, it's, it's super hard. I mean, I, I just had uh, Keith from Outsuite, one of our other sort of co-conspirators now on all of this, uh, and, he, and you know, he, he literally put an advert out for uh, mm-hmm. for his, uh, his well, he, what is now his co-founder. Um, so, yeah, it's, just, it's always one of those kind of interesting ones of like, how do you kind of marry that business and the technical mm-hmm. um, together? And, and when when is right to double down on it? You know, for, for sure. the first three years, it was just evenings and weekends. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, and also, I guess at that point, none of you are really sure that it's going to be the thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's, it's sort yeah. of like, you go, you go, right? yeah, this feels good, this feels mm-hmm. good, but like, when does it, uh, when does it turn? So what was the first sort of, uh, part of the platform that you built? Like, where did you kind of be- begin? Yeah, you want yeah. To so the, the very first label was uh, Monster Cat, and the, the, the problem that they were having is, is they would just literally get thousands of emails a week, maybe a thousand, two thousand. And um, and you were so you were there full time at that time, right? No. Or, or you were license, you did licensing, but just I, before that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that yeah. that's the fun thing is they were our first label partner, but they were also the person who connected us. So yeah. it's kind of a fun, uh, okay. yeah. fun segue. So that's sort of where we started, and we didn't really think through like how huge, you know, how big of an opportunity it is. It was really just focused on like Monster Cat has this this um, big problem and we were both we both loved you know from the artist's perspective just how hard that journey is and we wanted to you know even beyond it just being a business we wanted to see this kind of thing in a better state um, so we, yeah we launched with Monster Cat and that was kind of the first so, part but, of the and, that, and that thing that you launched with Monster yeah. Cat was it the complete system in, in a sense no right yeah, I mean, it was the, no, the well, MVP of MVP of, yeah and like right that was the bit I struggled with at first was like I, I knew exactly what we wanted to do and, and so did Derek and then it was like okay now we need to just keep finessing it down to something that's realistic to deliver because timing is so important with any product launch right so we knew that monster cat were keen to get a solution in place but we also needed to make sure we had a minimum threshold of that functionality to solve the problem with the vision of it will also go on to do x y and z but at day dot what is the most essential features and that that was one of the hard parts that i think now it's hard to fully think back on because we were so busy at the time across other things Mm. It, you know, we got there, but I couldn't tell you in too much detail what that, you know, what that process was. Because yeah. it was just so, yeah. Yeah, and, they, and they, they say to like, try to, you know, keep a lean prototype. And we didn't really do that. We, we spent all of our budget <laughs> and everything. We built it before we did any validation or user testing. Right. Which you don't really recommend usually, but thank God it, um, we, we had like a really good hunch about the problem mm-hmm. that was going on that proved to be true. But, um, there's definitely a few things we would do differently, but yeah. we, you know, that's the whole point of these journeys, right? You learn, you learn yeah. on the fly and as long as you're, you're taking it in. 
for sure. And, and shortly after we, we launched it, um, you know, we, we spent some time in their, their offices and really just sat with people using it and uh, just learned a ton after it launched. Uh, it, it took a little while to, um, you know, because we were working other jobs and, and stuff like that. So we, we went full time a couple years after, after launch. But that was probably the most rewarding part for me, I think, was actually sitting in the offices of some of these labels and, and watching them mm. physically actually use the product, you know. And also the, re the response from the artist community when the label, particularly with Monster Cats, because it was more of a launch, it was more of an event. So right. I remember on the Monster Cat Reddit, um, they announced, and they're like, hey guys, we're now opening demo submissions through this portal. And just seeing the artist response to that, where it was like, oh, this is so good. Like, it, they, they got it straight away because that, I mean, ultimately, if artists didn't use the platform, then it, it would all fall apart pretty well, quickly. I right? was going to ask about this because, I mean, it, it's when you, when you talk about the development of the business and the monster cat involvement, mm. it sounds like you're, you're thinking about it and developing from the label point of view. Yeah. But what you've just said there is, of course, yeah. really the, the, the key thing because it's, it's, it's about the connection with that, that wider unknown of, of all these and that, that's just it we were having to balance the need for solving problems on, and headaches for the label so that they would use the product and, and you know come and live in our product um, with the need to be respectful to artists and make sure that we're serving the artist community as well if not equally um, you know by, by making sure that we're helping them with their core problems just as much as we're solving the headaches for the labels and there is definitely yeah. a balancing act that has to be done with that um, but yeah I, I mean obviously things uh, things got pretty balanced and I'm not saying that they're in perfect balance we're still still yeah. getting there but uh, yeah pretty happy with with how things have, have turned out so far yeah very good yeah one of the one of the really like I guess different approaches we took was to take that moment of a rejection right where it's not like it's just a, a form where you're sending something in and getting a response. We, we take that moment where if you get a rejection, it's actually the beginning of this much other, uh, much bigger um, journey of all the other curators in the industry, all the other opportunities. And we take that no to like a not yet. And then we'll send it down this path of, well, here are all the other, you know, labels that might be a better fit. And we take that rejection moment that could be, you know, isolating and, and really demoralizing and channel that into just like, well, you're more on your journey. It's just maybe not right now but yeah. why don't you know have you thought about this because typically it's like you get the rejection it's like game over end of journey yeah right like that's the end of that track story but with with the way that we've approached it is it doesn't have to be right there are so many other pathways um and in that moment you don't feel like they're there but we wanted to make sure that we yeah. we, we kind of tilted that moment so you could see them and access them and just really easily accelerate from that negative into a potential positive one of the things that i particularly like about the platform because we've talked about artists and labels and the connection that you've made there but there's a sort of a third point to what i'm now going to call a triangle um which is the fans uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you've developed the, the product to, to to address that for sure yeah so for, for, for fans of the music industry, they're a segment that has been largely overlooked, I would say, historically. Like, they don't get the recognition that they deserve in terms of the actual, you know, input that they put into uh, to a, a success of a record or, you know, all of, all of that role that they play on a daily basis, whether it's engaging with a post or adding tracks to playlists. And a lot of them are extremely passionate, but they don't have... Well, there wasn't really a system in place that rewarded everything that they do on a daily basis. And so what we wanted to do was give them 
uh, a platform to be recognized for what they're already doing. So what we've done is we've created a, a unique opportunity for them where they can go through the music submissions uh, on Label Radar. They can only hear the 20-second clip. They can't see who the artist is. Um, but So it basically is just purely down to the music, right? And it's their initial reaction as music fans to that music. And it's basically Tinder, right? They can swipe right if they like it, swipe left if they don't. And that engagement can then first of all form really valuable data for the rest of the platform for like labels and seeing what's already proving popular with the fan audience but from an artist perspective it can give their track an extra bump where uh, a label can then filter by most popular and can see oh okay this track has received a higher ratio of right swipes recently and so the fans are helping curate in a way up to the the labels and if I, as a fan, have swiped right on a track that then goes on to be signed and released by a label, that's a huge emotional connection that I have to that track because I've been part of its journey, not from when I hear it on a streaming playlist, but from its actual, like, hey, would you like to sign this moment? And that's really powerful, and I think being able to surface that is really important, but also we give them points and recognition, and we give them, ultimately it's it's kind of bragging rights, but formalized, right? So rather than being like, I heard it first, you literally can say, I was the fifth person in the world to give that track a stamp for approval, and now it's on, you know, two million streams, and you know, loads of people love it. It's, yeah. it's those kind of journeys that I think just wouldn't be possible before and now are, are really compelling both for a fan for an artist and for a label yeah absolutely it's by far one of the most exciting parts of the platform for me at least i've ne just never seen it done before cool yeah very good yeah and, it, and it's and a lot of times it's the super super fan because it's a pretty active experience right. so you're not going to get um somebody just kind of going for a run or something it's somebody that wants to scout music that isn't on dsps yet it's uh, just out of the DAW. Nobody's heard it like anywhere really. So yeah, and, super and fan. I I can't wait till we can give them proper gamification as well, like leaderboards, where it's like I am right. the number one drum and bass scout. Like that is that is really exciting. Like I'll probably try and be that. You know. Yeah. Well, and and also I can imagine some of these fans actually building their own careers off the back of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Fact, yeah. Let's let's put that in the roadmap, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the, the meat of the, the, the conversation, perhaps. What, what led you to decide to sell to Beatport? Yeah, where did that sort of idea start from? Yeah, you know, it, um, it's one of those things where, like, as a bootstrap startup, you know, it teaches you a lot of lessons. Every dollar that comes in is absolutely sacred. You know, it's, it's oxygen. And uh, it really taught us to be really mindful of, like, what are we investing in? What are we... What are we prioritizing? Um, but at a certain point, I mean, Beatport has about 100,000 labels in their ecosystem. We have about 1,500, we have 133,000 um, artists, but you know, the real, the real mission was how do we make the music industry more accessible and more connected and less about who you know and more about the quality of your music, creating opportunities. And that was the, the success criteria we had going into it. So you know, to hold on to it, it started to feel like we were kind of holding back its mission in a way that if we were going to reach all hundred thousand, sure, we, we probably could have done it, but it would have taken, um, would have taken a long time and the industry needs it now. <laughs> so, so doing it with, with Beatport, I mean, Beatport has the, the network, has the people and every single 
person I've met that works here is one of the most passionate people I've ever met, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the music industry and lives and breathes it. He's one of know? my favorite things about people for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ed, Ed, anything to add to that or? Uh, yeah, I, I would say also on top of that, I think you're, you know, we, when we launched Label Radar, we looked at our competitive landscape and we were like, okay, it's, I mean, you've got a submit hub and us, and there isn't really anyone else doing this kind of thing. And not only that, but submit hub and ourselves could very peacefully coexist because there are different use cases for each platform. And then as the years went by, you know, we started seeing more and more businesses start pivoting or, or launching into the space. And it felt like we were going to get drawn into this kind of arms race for features and then ultimately not be able to pursue our vision because we'd be too busy kind of looking at what the other horses are doing, you know. And by getting the, the kind of weight of a brand like Beatport with us, we were also looking at, you know, who would be the most dangerous person for one of our competitors to partner with? Mm -hmm. And Beatport was top of that list as well. So mm -hmm. for us, it, it just made sense all around the board. You know, we, we get the resources to pursue the, the product roadmap that we've been dying to, to tackle. Um, and we also can, can alleviate some of that kind of, we can just almost put blinkers on. Um, because we, we have that extra confidence of the Beatport yeah. um, brand. Um, and I'm guessing neither of you have been through an exit before, or have you? Um, I've been through crash and burns. Crash <laughs> and burns. <laughs> <laughs> Not an exit, though. <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, so uh, is there anything that you think you would have done differently if you were to find yourselves in that situation again in the future? Certainly, like we've already kind of touched on, like in terms of how you validate a product and how you um, build an MVP and that kind of thing. And I think uh, early doors, there are a few things that we would do differently in terms of when to make the jump and, and how, we, how we have that conversation as well. Um, but nothing that I would be in a, in a rush to get a time machine for, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, well that's good to hear, Derek. Yeah. No, I think... Not too much more to add, except for um, some of the features we built. Like it's a skill we had to learn to to learn what to say yes to, what to say no to, mm. and um, it's something we're like way better at. And it, it would have been great to have been like better at that earlier, just to save time. But it comes with it, you know. It just takes time to to learn how to how to do it, I guess. How to yeah. make better decisions. Uh, very good. And um, uh, so now you're part of a larger organization. Um, what, what are the things that you sort of found that are most strikingly different from how you have been working for the last uh, you know, five or so years? I think it's, it's nice to be able to tap into fully fleshed out skill sets outside of what we're used to, right? Like Derek and I have, have both come into this journey from relatively similar uh, career paths. So uh, in terms of like not having ever really worked at a massive company and just really been doing kind of, I guess hustle right um and so it's really nice to rather than having to rely on the pure skill sets that we each have or a, a, a building to be able to be like okay we need to focus on a marketing task do we try and plug that ourselves or can we actually go to someone dedicated who is a, a leader in the space and that that to me is one of the really cool things is we not only get the the product resources and the the you know connections and the network effect of Beatport, but we also get the talent effect of Beatport, which is something we haven't really had a chance to to tap into before. Uh, and Derek, what 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 are your sort of main hopes for the actual product itself? Now now you've got a few more resources and uh, wider team to tap yeah. into. 
honestly, just the, the network. I feel like that that's something that's so exciting. It's just to really, uh, you know, if, if we got one and a half percent of the Beatport community, that's doubling our entire label user base. And um, yeah, just capturing that network. And then as Ed was saying, I mean, our roadmap went out for years of people requesting features and there's like a million things to work on. Um, you know, some of it's the right thing to, to work on over other things, but yeah, just really just capturing that, that network and building something that genuinely connects our space is like super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's probably slightly too early for this type of question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because uh, it's my podcast, I get to do what I want. <laughs> um, but like in terms of your personal goals, I mean, they, they were not so long ago, probably about just building this business. And but what do they look like now? How do you feel about, um, you know, sort of post acquisition? Have you had a chance to ruminate on that at all? Yeah. And that's a great question. Uh, I think for me, it's a case of there was always this question mark over whether or not we would get to take label radar to the full vision. Mm -hmm. And now we have the resources to do that. And we've put all the foundation in place to do that, whether it remains the vision that Derek and I have discussed for the last however many years, or whether it, you know, becomes molded slightly differently in light of its position within the Beatport group, you know, that's fine. I think for me now it's like, okay, great. That question mark is gone because we now can take it to that vision. It's just a question of whether it remains that vision or if it becomes something slightly different. Um, and for me personally, I would say just really excited to be able to now integrate with the other awesome facets of the Beatport group and like be able to take steps in, for example, the NFT side of things with synth heads and all of these, these different areas where it's not just a silo anymore. It's, you know, professionally there's, there's all kinds of different paths that can now be, uh, be tied into. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Derek. Yeah. Super similar. You know, I mean the whole kind of value cycle of a track, we've been so focused on just one piece where it's just like so zoomed into that one problem mm -hmm. and, and it's a real chance to sort of see the bigger picture and to work on a ton of other things. And like Ed was saying, I mean, work with some world-class people from all around the world that some of the best in the world at what they do from data science, product, marketing, um, engineering. And then, uh, and then almost as if we raise venture capital, it's kind of a similar yeah. experience as far as I know where, you know, the whole company is, accelerating but the chips are off the table it's like you know we're, we're not like taking our risk through the roof and we get to experience that journey it might be a little different but in a way that's like you know really protecting the mission and not compromising and it, it definitely changes the the opening conversation as well with people when it's not just like knock knock with this plucky startup called Label Radar. It's knock knock. This is Ed from Beatport Group. Uh, well, it's okay. So you read my next question perfectly, um, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, for so long you've personally identified as Ed or Derek from Label Radar, and, and that must just trip off the tongue. Like when you meet people in in person, when does that switch to, hi, I'm Derek Ed from Beatport. I feel like it depends who you're talking to to some extent, like for, for pre-existing relationships, uh, a lot of it will still revert to Label Radar because that's how they know us, right? Sure. Um, but I think when we're talking about going after some of the titans of industry and we need that extra weight or when it is just a net new conversation, 
Um, opening with, you know, I'm Ed from the Beatport group just helps get, frame the conversation slightly better because you just have that instant comfort of, I know that brand and I, this person, is, you know, it sounds a bit cynical, but this person is potentially worth my time. You know, it's that initial spark point that is a lot harder to convey when you're f giving them a brand name that they've, pr well, hopefully heard of, but potentially <laughs> never heard yeah. of. Not always, I've yeah. found. Yeah, no, not always, but, um, but yeah, no, good, good answer. Derek. No, I think you nailed it. Yeah, like new conversations, but then old conversations. I mean, it's such a good relationship that, um, you know, I guess it only helps, but yeah, it definitely helps going forward, I think, with, with the, new, the new people coming yeah. into, the, into the world. Amazingly, we've, uh, we've got through all the questions and uh, come off on time nicely. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah, thank you. To my listeners, thank you for listening. As ever, I welcome all feedback, comments, and suggestions for future shows. My Twitter and Instagram handle is at Alex Branson, or head to the website where you'll find a contacts page. Also, a shout out to the incredible audio assassins who provided the music branding for the show. And if you like the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.